Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now, I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Are we good? I got to say, if you are a parent of a young child and you are at the 930 service, well done, man. <laughs> My family can't even say that. So I am super impressed by you guys right now. Uh, and I feel like we're all probably running on no sleep and a whole lot of caffeine uh, right now. If we have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Brad and uh, I get to serve as the pastor here at New Life. And I am just blown away daily by what God is doing in this community, not just in these four walls, but in our community of Wayland and Plainwell and Otsego and the surrounding areas. Uh, God's really moving and he's really stirring some things. And it's been so, so cool to see. Um, one of those things before we jump into the sermon today that I want to give you an update on is uh, kind of where we're at with our space next door. So as many of you know, um, we have been in the process of negotiating a lease uh, to expand our space so that we can have family ministry space, a community hygiene store uh, to serve families in our community. And God has just been stirring hearts and moving things forward like crazy with that. So uh, the first part of it is we have a, a launch team that's meeting monthly um, that's really kind of getting the ball rolling on the hygiene store side of things. Uh, but then the other side of that is kind of renovating that space and updating it and making it look beautiful and presentable and not dangerous to be in. And so, um, and so all of that to say, really the first step for that is demolition. We get to smash some stuff. So if this picture scares you, Trent, Josh, and I with power tools, we need you. <laughs> we need your help. One of my favorite things about this building is that it was the church that built this space. Um, I think it was something along the lines of 80% of the work in this space. Is that right, Lori? 80% of the work in this space was done by the hands and feet of people in our church. And so our heart, our desire is to do the same thing over there. And so we need your help. We need your hands. We need your power tools. We need your hearts. <laughs> and so uh, this Saturday, we're, uh, we have a day where we're just kind of clearing out the space, 10 a.m. Uh, there's a lot of junk over there, and so we just need to get it out of there. And so if you have a place that we could even store some things for a few months or trailers or whatever, uh, we could really use help with that. Lori, if you want to raise your hand, is the person to talk to. She's at the coffee bar after service if you have an option for that. And then the 27th, man, I am so excited to take a sledgehammer to some stuff. So so, uh, we're going to be ripping up some carpet and doing some fun things on the 27th, which is next Saturday. So if you're able to make one or both of those, we would be so appreciative of the help. We're going to have a lot of fun together. Sound good? Yes. Cool. Let me pray. And then we're going to jump into our last week of our series estimate. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your faithfulness. God, you are so good. You are so present. You are so faithful to us, God. And this morning, we gather for no other reason but to lift your name high, to lift the name of Jesus up in our community, in our world. 
And God, as we dive into our teaching this morning, God, may these not be my words, but may your Holy Spirit speak through me. May your Holy Spirit illuminate your word for all of us so that we walk out of this place looking more like you as a result. God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The year was 1984. Tom Vanderson was working in a clothing store and noticed in the woman's clothing store next door a pretty young lady named Linda Jones. And uh, he decided to ask her out on a date. And like you do on a first date, he really wanted to impress her. And so he thought, man, I'm going to take her to get some steak and some lobster at Red Lobster. And so he was excited. He was getting ready. He was going to pull out all the stops. And so he picks her up at her home. And on the way, she asks a question that would be a defining question for the rest of their marriage. You sure you don't just want to go to McDonald's instead? (laughs) That was the question that she asked him. Now, of course, there is nothing wrong with McDonald's on a first date. But for her, the spirit behind this question was, there's a steak dinner available to me. You sure you don't just want to do the bare minimum? And the reason this question became so defining for the rest of their marriage was because my dad is the cheapest man on the planet. My uncle, who sits right there, knows my dad well. By the way, I did get their permission to share this, so I'm not just riffing on them without them watching. Hi, Mom and Dad. Uh, My father is the single cheapest man on the planet. And as as a kid, that quality drove me nuts. As an adult, I actually really respect that in him because it's allowed him to be very generous. But as a kid, that drove me nuts. And so every Saturday night when it was coming time to go out to eat, where did my dad want to go every single Saturday night? McDonald's. And he would, my mom would ask him, what happened to the man that wanted to take me to steak and lobster dinners? And my father's response was, what happened to the woman that was okay with McDonald's? (laughs) Isn't it true that the right questions lead to the right kinds of relationships and the wrong questions can lead to all kinds of relationship problems? If you are a counselor or if you've been in counseling, you know the freeing power of the right questions and the freedom and the healing that can happen through right questions. If you're a small group leader or you're in a small group, you know the power of good questions can change everything about relationships. But on the flip side, you also probably know the power of asking the wrong questions. Dating. You don't ask the right questions while you're dating. It can lead to all kinds of problems in a marriage. Interviews. If you ask the wrong questions in an interview, it can lead to a really bad hire, a really bad job experience. And I would argue sometimes we ask God the wrong questions. Sometimes in the church, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, sometimes we just just flat out ask God the wrong questions. Questions And one of the wrongest questions, wrongest, most wrong, (laughs) one of the most wrong questions that I see Christians asking on a regular basis is this one right here. Do I need to tithe? Awkward silence fell over the room. (laughs) Do I need to tithe? What's wrong with this question? 
Because oftentimes what happens is this question is asked out of a heart of what's the bare minimum, Jesus? What's the bare minimum that I can do? And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I don't even know what tithing is. I want to just define this really quick for us. So we're all on the same page going forward here. Tithing is faithfully returning the first 10% of our income to God. Tithing is faithfully returning the first 10% of our income to God. Now, when we talk about tithing, a lot of us, I think, have misconceptions as to what this actually is and what it means. For example, sometimes we'll say, well, I don't have enough left over at the end of the month to be able to tithe. That's not a tithe. You always have a first 10%. Other times, we'll say things like, I tithe my time or my talents. That's also not a tithe. It's returning the first 10% of our income. And the last one is we'll tithe as an emotional response. I tithed a couple months ago when we did a Christmas blessing. That's also, that's also not a tithe. It's returning faithfully the first 10% of our income back to God. Now, if you've asked this question, I'm not sitting here judging you. I've asked the same question. Do I need to tithe? What's the big deal about tithing? Where is it in scripture? Does the church just want to exploit me for my money? I mean, those are all of the things that we kind of ask when we talk about this topic. And I have this crazy notion that we as a family should be able to talk about this without awkwardness. Amen. Is that fair? I think we can talk about this without awkwardness um, because it is a challenging topic. But here's what I believe. I believe that if we learn to ask the right question in this area, it can lead to so much life for every single one of us. So much life in our community, so much life that Jesus has to offer if we learn to ask the right questions of him. So where I want to start today is in Matthew 19, a textbook example of a man who asked the wrong question of Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And behold... A man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, his question is basically this. How do I get into heaven? That's what he's asking. How do I get into heaven? Now, there's not anything necessarily fundamentally wrong with this question to begin with. But for some reason, this guy asking this question of Jesus brings out an incredibly sassy response from Jesus. In fact... Questions of Jesus about what's the bare minimum kind of always bring out a sassy response to Jesus. It's kind of like, don't ask sassy questions if you don't want a sassy response from me. Uh, but he's, what he's doing here, what this, this man who happens to be rich is doing here, is he's saying, what's the bare minimum, Jesus? What do I need to do to get into heaven, to inherit eternal life? What's the bare minimum? Where's the line? And I want you to listen to how Jesus responds in verse 17. And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, which uh, hopefully I did that today. We'll see. I'll find out later. <laughs> and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? So here you have this guy who is keeping the letter of the law. We're going to find out in a few verses that he was very rich, but he, he keeps the letter of the law to a T. 
And he comes up to Jesus and he asks this question and we can assume pretty safely that he's a Jewish man because he's keeping the commandments, he's keeping the Torah. But here's, here's a detail that we often miss if you've heard this story before. That in this world where Jesus was living, it was nearly impossible for a Jewish person to be rich without standing on the backs of their Jewish brothers, sisters, and neighbors. In other words, in order to be a rich Jew during Jesus' time, you had to exploit other Jews. One of the most famous examples is the profession of tax collector, where if you were a Jew, you would collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government, but you would collect more than they actually demanded, and you'd keep the extra for yourself, forcing your Jewish neighbors, brothers, sisters into poverty. Tax collector is just one example. We don't know what this man's profession is, but he could have been a landlord. Landlords did this a lot with their Jewish neighbors, where they exploited the land and the lease agreements for the Roman government and for their own pockets. There was even one family during this time that had like total control over the pigeon selling game in the temple, right? They used pigeon selling as a means to line their own pockets. And so to be rich almost guaranteed that you were exploiting other Jewish people in cahoots with the Roman Empire, the Roman government. It was a very big problem. And here's the kicker about this guy. He was probably a very faithful tither. In fact, scholars, scholars argue that he most likely was a very faithful, faithful tither for the temple. But his corruption was causing him to steal from his Jewish brothers and sisters and neighbors to the point where there's those Jewish brothers, sisters, and neighbors would have to sell their very kids into slavery to even survive. But at least he tithed, right? At least he tithed. And so it's this guy coming up to Jesus, asking this question, how do I inherit eternal life? This is a bold question from a guy like this to a poor Jewish rabbi. This is a gutsy question. And you know how Jesus responds? The Gospel of Mark says he looked at this guy and he loved him. He looked at this guy and he loved him. Amen. And this is what Jesus says to him in the Gospel of Matthew here, reading on in verse 23, or 21, sorry. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have this guy coming up to Jesus, asking this question right here, how do I get into heaven? That's his question for Jesus. How do I get into heaven? And Jesus seems to suggest that this is the wrong question for this guy to be asking because what Jesus seemed far more interested for people who would follow him and become his disciples is the answer to this question right here. How does heaven get into me? That's what Jesus seemed to be more obsessed with. How does heaven get into you? You see, if, if I just read Jesus' teachings through the lens of the first question, Every single one of them. He takes Jewish law, and he doesn't lower the bar on Jewish law. He actually raises the bar on Jewish law. And so if I read his teachings entirely through the first question, how do I get into heaven? 
It creates a work-based gospel that you will ultimately fall drastically short of and just kind of wallow in your own shame and in your own inadequacy. Think about this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. And what Jesus does, this is the law, and he raises the bar and he says, if you even look at a person lustfully, you've committed adultery with them. He says, you've heard it was said, do not murder. He says, if you even hate a brother or shout you fool to them, you're guilty. He goes on, he says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, but it's no longer that. It's be good to those who do evil to you. Jesus is raising the bar in every single area of the law. Why? Because the law was not God's ultimate standard of righteousness. Jesus was. Let me say that again. The law, the law was not Jesus' ultimate standard of righteousness, or was not God's ultimate standard of righteousness. Jesus was. And he does this with who is my neighbor? He expands the definition of neighbor. What does it mean to lead? It means to wash feet. He, he raises the bar in every single area. We're beginning to see why bare minimum questions are super problematic for Jesus. It's not after the bare minimum in our lives. Jesus operated under the simple principle that his death his life, his burial, his resurrection, all of that would be so powerful to transform a life, so sufficient to save, so effective to restore our relationship with God and with each other and give us eternal life, that the only rational response to that, the only fruit of that would be radical obedience to him, radical generosity, and radical gratitude. Jesus took care of the first question on our behalf. Amen? Amen? He took care of that question. Jesus' work on the cross is what gets us eternal life in heaven. But if I'm stuck still asking the bare minimum questions of what it means to follow Jesus, heaven hasn't yet gotten into me. The Holy Spirit still has more work to do in my life if I'm asking and struggling with bare minimum questions about what it means to follow Jesus. Let me illustrate this. Imagine if my parents had gone on that first date and my dad, his mindset going into that first date was what's the bare minimum I can do to get me a second date? And so when they go, my mom orders a Diet Coke with lime and he says, nah, just get water, it's cheaper. Or what would happen if he was on his phone the whole time, completely uninterested, which is what a lot of guys are doing on first dates these days. So shame on you if that's... No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, I'm not kidding. Shame on you if that's you. Um, imagine if he looked at her half-eaten plate and, uh, and said, man, that's $12.31 of wasted food right there. Can, you, can I finish that? Can you finish that? And at the end, he asked, did I get myself a second date? Do you think that would go super well? No. If I'm asking the bare minimum of following Jesus, if I'm asking bare minimum questions about following Jesus, heaven has not yet invaded my heart. Amen. I want to say that again. If I'm asking bare minimum questions about following Jesus, heaven has not yet gotten into me. Some of you are thinking here, that's great, Brad. That principle is great. I agree with that. But it's a stretch to say that applies to tithing. And I would say, actually, Jesus applied this exactly to tithing. 
he applied this principle to tithing itself. If you read on in just a few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 23, he's speaking to the the Pharisees and the scribes who are the utmost keepers of the law. And he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So in other words, what he is doing is he's raising the bar. He's saying the tithe is the starting point for a life invaded by my presence, but it's certainly not the finish point. It's the starting point. In fact, Jews around this time had several different tithes that they were paying. You know that upwards of 23% of Jewish income was offered in tithe? was offered for temple upkeep. It was offered for taking care of the poor and the community. God set up a system for his people where there were no exorbitantly rich people and there were no extremely poor people. In the community of God's people, everyone took care of each other, and it was a beautiful thing. The average amount that Christians give away today of our income is 3%. And that's not a shame thing. I don't want you to hear that and think, man, I'm I'm coming down on you. But what I want to say to you is, man, there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity here. You see, with the rich young ruler, he's asking this question, how do I get into heaven? But when Jesus asks this question, how does heaven get into you? For this rich young ruler, he goes right after his finances. Right after his finances, he goes towards the thing that has his heart immediately. You see, friends, tithing is the starting point to invite heaven into my finances. When Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, which we preached about two weeks ago. He's not, he didn't, notice he didn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be. He's saying, put your treasure where it needs to go and your heart will follow. It's treasure first and then heart follows. Where your treasure will be, there your heart will be also. So how does heaven get into me in the area of finances? If you want heaven to invade your heart, move your treasure. If you want heaven to invade your heart, move your treasure. If you have an issue with this statement, don't take it up with me. I'm just the messenger. Take it up with him. Here's what I would say, guys, that that for us, giving is not just an emotional response. It's not done under obligation. It's not using our sacrifice of time or talents as an excuse not to be obedient with our finances, because when all of those areas are my approach to my money, I still ultimately have control over those things. Jesus is after surrender. He's after surrender. And what I think is so cool is that Jesus says, start with tithing, start with the discipline, the practice of tithing, of returning your first 10% to me, but don't stop there because I have so much more for you than that. I have so much more for you than that. What I love about this 10% model is it's the same sacrifice, whether you're rich or poor, it's the same sacrifice, whether you have plenty or want, you never We never don't have a first 10% of our income. And when you read the New Testament, it doesn't talk about tithing all that much. You know why? 
because it wasn't a question they were asking. There's not a single example in the New Testament of a disciple of Jesus giving away less than 10% of their income. Not a single example. And uh, the reason for this is not because it was required. It's not because it was part of the law. By the way, tithing transcends the law by 400 years beforehand. Just so you know, it's not just part of the law. It's, it's a much bigger picture of God's heart for us. But heaven invaded the church's heart in the New Testament. Not because it was required, what do I need to do to get into heaven? It's because heaven got into them. You see, the opposite of the rich young ruler in this case who goes away sad because he has great wealth, is Zacchaeus. Same exact starting story. He exploited his brothers and sisters, got rich off the backs of other people, and when Jesus invites him into new life, what does he do? He returns everything required by the law and extravagantly more than what was required by the law. Why? Because heaven got into Zacchaeus' heart. This is the church in Acts, giving and sharing 10% and beyond everything they had, being given for the benefit of each other and the benefit of, of the church and the kingdom of God being known and proclaimed. Why? Not because it was required, but because heaven got into the church. This is the, this is the thief in Ephesians 4 who goes from stealing to working and earning an honest wage and that's where the world would say, well done, you've made it. But in God's economy, there's one more progression. He goes to being generous with what he's making. Amen. So it's stealing, earning an honest wage, and then extravagant generosity. Why? Because heaven got into this thief. There was an emperor named Julian who was absolutely hostile, a Roman empire towards the church. He hated the church. And he is quoted with saying, this is a Roman Empire who hates the, the church. He is quoted with saying, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jewish beggar among us because those Christians, that church, they not only are taking care of their own poor, they're taking care of our poor as well. It's this crazy notion that the church is better than the government at caring for people. Amen? Can I get an amen? No? Is that too political? I, I really believe that. I really believe that, that we as the church have an opportunity and responsibility to care for each other in a way that makes the emperors, the Julians of our world say, man, heaven has gotten into those people. What is the deal with them? Why are they so different? Why are they so weird? That's our opportunity, guys. I used to worry a lot more about money than I do now. And, uh, I'm going to be very transparent with you guys. I actually didn't ever tithe regularly until I was in a ministry position. And the reason for that is because I just hated how I saw churches using money. I just hated it. I struggled with it. I, I wrestled with it. And ironically, I, I make a lot less money than I used to before I was in ministry because, you know, pastors don't make much money at all. Uh, I call my wife my sugar mama because uh, she makes a lot more than I do. But uh, <laughs> here's the thing. I started tithing with the wrong heart. 
I started tithing because I was stepping into a job in ministry and I was worried that the people around me would call me out for not doing it. And so I started tithing out of guilt. Nobody made me feel that way except for myself, but I started doing that. I didn't practice tithing until I started working at a church, and I let my bitterness towards the way churches can abuse money get in the way of me being obedient with the money God had given me. I want to be really clear. If I use my bitterness towards a church and the way a church is using money as an excuse not to practice tithing, I have a heart issue. I have a heart issue. As a pastor, as church leaders, I am accountable to God with how we use our finances here as a church. But if I see that and I disagree because of my own preferences or even maybe my own convictions and therefore I don't give anything because I'm bitter, that is a heart issue on my heart. God chose the tithe as a rhythm to get heaven into people's hearts and he chose the church to be the foretaste of what heaven actually looks like. I used to have a big beef with that model. I had the heart of the rich young ruler, and I needed to surrender that and offer that to God and watch him move. And you know what's happened since? It doesn't have a hold on my heart like it did. It doesn't have the same hold, the same power in my life that it did before. It started as guilt, wrong motivation, but God has used that in my life to transform some things, to loosen some strongholds, and to see him move undeniably in my life. And he wants the same thing for you. And so I want to close our time together by just asking this simple question. Has heaven invaded your heart in this area? This is between you and God, or you and your spouse and God. Has heaven invaded my heart in this area? I would recommend, if it hasn't, to start somewhere. Start somewhere. If 10% is going to absolutely destroy you right away, start with 2%, 3%, 4%, whatever it is. Start somewhere. And get into a rhythm of giving away money consistently, regularly, faithfully, as an act of obedient surrender, and it will stretch you. God never promised it would be easy or comfortable. It will stretch you. And maybe you have been faithful at giving 10%, and it just kind of, it's forgotten in the background. Where might God be calling you to actually give more? to actually increase your giving, not for the sake of obligation, not for the sake of requirement. Again, do I need to tithe? That's the wrong question. The right question is, has heaven gotten into me in this area? To the point where I am paying attention to what God is doing and ready to be obedient and ready to act in response to him. It's both planned and spontaneous generosity at the same time. So if you're here this morning and you've faithfully Tides, you've faithfully given of yourself, wherever that may be too. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your generosity. I don't get a chance to say that enough. Thank you. And if you're here and you've given emotionally or as a reaction to God's moving, I want to say thank you to you too. That's not nothing. That's incredible. That's God stirring something in you and moving something in you. And maybe you're here and, and you've never given. And this is just an awkward conversation to begin with. 
I would say thank you for being here and, and listening with an open heart, too. I mean, that, that matters, too, a lot. But I, I believe God wants so much more for us than, than just what he wants from us. And I believe if you surrender this area of your life, he will, he will do some things. He will bring about a harvest that you can't even begin to imagine right now. This is what he says, and I'm going to close with this as the band makes their way back up. This is what he says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. So he tells us to test him in this. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need... What he's saying here is heaven will invade your heart when you put this into practice. He's not promising prosperity or financial blessings or a prosperity gospel. He is promising that heaven will invade your heart if you put this into practice. Amen. And so I encourage you, start somewhere and let's let God move as a community. Let's pray together and then we're going to worship. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, that you, God, don't just so much want something from us, but you want so much for us. You want this abundant life that only comes through you, God. God, you didn't withhold your first and best from us. You gave freely and generously your son as a love offering for the sins of the world, God. And God, as an act of love and trust and faith, we, we return to you what you have so generously blessed us with. God, I pray for people in this room who maybe are considering or praying about putting this into practice for maybe the first time in their lives. God, I pray that, um, that you will reveal yourself to those people that as they are stretched and as they step into faithfulness, as they step into this act of obedience, God, may you grow them. May you reveal yourself to them in a way that only you can. God, I also pray for people in here that are maybe financially struggling right now, that are hurting, that this pandemic has just crippled them. God, I pray for, for those people. I pray that uh, where there are needs, God, that we as a church may be able to step in and meet needs and serve each other like we see in the church in Acts, this, this act of no needy people among us. And God, I, I, just, I just pray for people who are far from you right now. People who, because of this community, this generous ridiculously giving community of people. God, I pray that you will draw people to yourself through this community's generosity, through hand-to-hand -hand ministry, through the hygiene store that we're opening. God, may you draw people to yourself as a result. God, we love you. We adore you and we respond in worship to you. It's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen.